This morning we are in the 15th chapter of John's Gospel. And um, the 15th chapter of John's Gospel in one word on the whole is about home. It's about the place of belonging and formation and faith and struggle and friendship. Home is supposed to be the place where our deepest joys and resources are rooted. It is the place of loyalty and commitment and communion. At least that is the ideal, right? So when Jesus says in John 15, 4, Abide in me and I in you, this is an invitation to homemaking. Make me your home is what Jesus is saying. So for the church, home is not a geographic location. It's not a strip of land in the Middle East somewhere. It's not your favorite state that begins with the letter T. Home is a person. And the first half of John 15 is about the joy of owning Jesus as our home. But the second half of John 15, the passage that belongs to us this morning, is about the strain that our new home puts on us in the here and now. Knowing Jesus is a great joy. Knowing Jesus is frankly also a great hardship. Discipleship requires the honesty of both, though the latter tends to dawn on us much more slowly in our lives. What John wants us to see this morning is that to be at home with Jesus really means this. It is to lose your place in the world. And not only to lose your place in the world, to make Jesus your home is to welcome hostility and antagonism and alienation. It is an important sense to feel homeless in the life that is taking place all around you. St. Cyril of Jerusalem, an early church father, he was a bishop, wrote this in his instructions to his catechumens. These are those who were coming up for discipleship, for baptism. This is what he wrote to them. He said this, the dragon sits by the side of the road, watching those who pass by. Beware, or he will devour you. Young children, we go to the father of souls, but it is necessary for all of us to pass by the dragon. Jesus will say much the same thing to you this morning. In order to get home, it is necessary for the church to pass by the dragon. That journey is not safe, and so we must take care, lest we are devoured by it. Little Christians, here's a question for you to think about this morning as we talk about dragons. (laughs) Who is the dragon in our passage? Who is the dragon? According to Jesus, who is it that wants to devour his people, and why in the world would they want to do such a thing? This is the gospel of Jesus Christ according to his servant John, starting in the 18th verse of chapter 15 and going through John chapter 16, verse 1. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, 
because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have not been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you, to keep you from falling away. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would give us your Spirit very simply this morning, so that we may see Jesus We pray this in His name. Amen. There are three basic things that I want us to look at together this morning in our passage. Three things that are related to being at home in Jesus and yet at the same time feeling like and really being homeless in the world. Here are the three things. First of all, I want you to see the expectation of our experience. What Jesus says that our experience is going to be like in a normative way. Second, I want you to see the cause of the hostility. What is it exactly that's behind the world's hatred of the church? And then finally, the comfort of God's presence. How in the world is it possible for the church to survive without falling away as the dragon clenches its jaws and as the church passes by the dragon? Three things, expectation, Cause and comfort. We'll go in that order because Jesus does. Our passage begins with Jesus laying out the expectation for life in the church. Here it is. The expectation for life in the church as we live in the world. Verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it has hated you. That means this. The normative experience of the church in the world is to be hated by the world. It is, in fact, normal for the world to hate the people who belong to Jesus. So says Jesus. Now, what in the world does that mean? Those are very strong words, may require a little bit of explanation. The word world in John's gospel does not refer to raw creation, creation untouched, just the material view of creation. It refers to the collective direction of fallen humanity. The individuals, the institutions, the ideas produced by us. What do I mean by us? I mean the ruined kings and queens of creation in our antagonism towards God. Now, some of you may have seen the, or read the line in which in the wardrobe before. You may know it just by reputation. That in that story, the white witch has cast a spell over Narnia. So that, Lewis writes this over and over again, that in Narnia, it is always winter, but it's never Christmas. Narnia was created good. It still remains structurally good. But under the witch's spell... Narnia is not good. Everything is disordered. It is dysfunctional. So bad that it could be always be winter. 
and yet never be Christmas. In John's gospel, you can think about the world that way. The world is God's creation under the spell of Adam's first transgression. So that all of the structures in the world, think about that for a second, everything, culture, art, work, politics, education, recreation, romance, family, kids, friendship, just to name a few, everything that we collectively consider good and true and beautiful, it has all been enchanted by our rebellion against God, corrupted. What God gave us as good has now become disordered and dysfunctional. In our world, it is always winter, but it's never Christmas. So what does God promise to do? In the gospel, God promises a thaw. As early as Genesis 3, God promises to break the spell of evil and to return to his creation the glory for which it was made to bear in the first place. And he promises in Genesis 3 to do this through the work of a champion. If you've read Genesis 3 before, do you remember how the story goes? The champion there is identified as the seed of the woman. And God says this, that he will, not just naturally, but he will actually do this. He will put hostility, not peace. That God will actually put enmity between his champion and the serpent. And not only between his champion and the serpent, but also between his champion and the people of the serpent, the seed of the serpent. Those that are created are made or that follow through in the image of the serpent so that this is what happens. From the beginning of Genesis 3, there are two dominions in the world that will clash irreconcilably until the day that God's champion emerges victorious on behalf of both creator and creation. The world in John's vocabulary and Jesus' parlance here is the rule of the serpent and his seed. It is a reference to that dominion. And listen, here's what we learn as early as Genesis 3. The world in this sense can do nothing except be at war with Jesus and his people. That is the spell under which the world labors until the day when the spell is finally broken under the cosmic judgment of God, a day that we look forward to in the future. The normative experience of the church in the world is to be hated by the world. Happy Mother's Day. So what does that mean for us? Well, it just means this. It means that we have to be careful. I'm saying this to myself as much as anyone this morning. As much as we enjoy our world, as much as we enjoy our culture and our commerce, as much as we enjoy our technology and our entertainment, the world is not safe. The world is not neutral. The world is not confused and pitiful like a lost traveler who is in need of a little directional clarity, maybe some Christian reinterpretation. The world is not a stray dog that you can welcome into your house and housebreak and tame and trust when you go to sleep at night. The world is a dragon. 
the jaws of which are hungry and strong, so strong and hungry that Jesus warns us this morning against apostasy. That means falling away, against actually being devoured by it. Maybe I could put the warning in another way, perhaps more simply, more personally, maybe even more strongly. If we are loved by the world, if we are at home in it, then something has gone wrong with our discipleship. If there is no dissonance in our lives, no friction, no alienation, then something is wrong. Somewhere along the way, we have lost our identity as witness bearers to the one against whom the world is always at war. And if this wasn't heavy enough, here is another chilling reality in our passage this morning. (laughs) Like you need more. It's this. The boundary marker between the church and the world is not all that clear. Look with me. When Jesus uses the word world here, he is specifically talking about those who have been marked as belonging to the people of God, to the church. Listen to verse 25. But the word that is written in their law, that's also God's law, must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. He is talking about the people of God. It's a reference stretching back and reaching back into the Old Testament Psalms. The world here that will hate Jesus and his people is not the world of the Gentile pagans, at least here. It's not the world of the Roman officials and Pontius Pilate. It's not the people with the Darwin decals on the back of their cars. It is the world of the Jewish leaders. And guess who Jesus is? He is their Messiah. It is the world of his apostles as Jewish men. And this is what Jesus is getting at. Word and sacrament. Right? Old Testament and circumcision. Are not enough to fully separate the church from the world. And they are the strongest weapons we have. But they are not enough to make a sharp delineation, a clean cut between the wheat and the weeds. So that we know this from Matthew's gospel as well. The wheat and the weeds will grow up together into the day of harvest. In other words, the world is not only not safe, the world is not very straightforward. We cannot assume as the church that the world is out there while the church is in here on Sunday mornings, hands folded, eyes bowed, head down. In one sense, and we'll learn this in a couple of chapters in John 17, in one sense, it is against the mission of God for the church to try to fully separate itself from the world. It's contrary to the mission of God. John 17, Jesus prays that the Lord would leave them in the world to send them out into the world. It's contrary. In another sense, it's actually impossible. Build whatever Christian institutions you want. As long as you know, those institutions can never serve as fortresses. The wheat and the weeds will grow up together into the time of the harvest. Why is Jesus telling us this? Well, he just wants to adjust our expectations, really, I think. And here's what he's getting at. 
The normative experience of the church in the world is to be hated by the world. It could be active persecution. It could be passive marginalization. It's to be hated by the world while living in the midst of the world, while bearing witness to the world, while the world is inside her own ranks. As my mom used to say, that's a hot mess. It's a struggle for us not only to know Jesus, it is a struggle for us as well to name the opponents and the struggle itself. We do have clarity in terms of the cause, though. Jesus offers it to his people this morning, the cause of the world's hostility. Look again at verses 19 through 21 if you have your Bible open. This is what Jesus says. I'll read it again. He says, if you were of the world... The world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I have said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, here's the promise, they will in fact persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But listen to this. But all things they will do to you on account of my name. In other words, the hostility towards the church from the world, really is Jesus' fault. It's his fault. You can blame him. He will gladly accept the blame because this is the only type of hostility for which the church will one day be vindicated. Let me be clear on that. There are two basic reasons why the world might hate the church. The first is what this passage is about. One is for the name of Jesus. It's the fulfillment mentioned in verse 25. They hated me without cause. In other words, the church will be hated for her public association with the one who came not only to bear sin, but also bring sin to light. But the second reason, the second reason for which the world may hate the church is not for the name of Jesus, but for the name of our own foolishness, disguised as the name of Jesus. Now, this is an important distinction. It is true the world may reject you and us without just cause. But it is also true that it may do so with just cause. Here's what I mean. The world may look at your and our arrogance. The world may look at our immorality. The world may look at our cruelty our elitism, our racism. And the world may look at us and despise a people who bear a name but have little reality to hide behind that name. The reason that we need to make this distinction clear is because of the temptation that we have to excuse our foolishness as righteous suffering. Listen to me. Sometimes, according to Jesus, we'll be mocked unjustly. But sometimes we'll be mocked because we had it coming. In those times, the world prophetically has actually obeyed the voice of Proverbs. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. But let's come back and say that open hostility, persecution, subtle marginalization, whatever it is, that we suffer from the world is basically without cause. It's for our association with Jesus, who is also hated without cause. Then you had the why question, right? I think Jason mentioned this a few weeks ago. 
How in the world can you hate a guy who went around healing people and forgiving sins and casting out demons and making more wine? I mean, more wine to keep the party going. The world loves this kind of stuff. Why in the world would you hate a guy like that? Look at verse 22. It's actually repeated in verse 24. We'll stay in verse 22 for a second. Jesus says this, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now it is, they have no excuse for their sin. Here's what he's doing. In John's Gospel, Jesus not only names himself as the world's sin bearer, he also names himself as the world's sin bringer. Jesus is hated because he brings to light the depth of the world's brokenness in his person and in his work. Maybe I could put it like this. Do you like looking at yourself in the mirror first thing when you get up in the morning? Maybe some of you do. Maybe you get up beautiful. I do not. Eyes puffy. Lips cracked. Little drool in the chin there. What if I saw you like that? What if I took a picture of you like that before you cleaned yourself up? What if I made those pictures public for everyone to see? You would say that's creepy and you'd be right. But you'd also despise me for it. Why would you do so? Because we all have a strong interest in self-presentation. We have a strong interest in cleaning ourselves up and keeping our ugliness covered. And I would say this, the heart is no different than the face, except perhaps in the intensity of its defensiveness. The world hates Jesus because Jesus exposes its ugliness underneath its work of self-presentation. It's, a, it's an exposure that no one else can get at. Jesus holds up a mirror to the world's dominant convictions at the same time that he's doing this, he proclaims that it is broken beyond self-repair, that it is misguided beyond self-education. He is not only the sin-bearer, he is also the sin-bringer. I'll show you one quick example that uh, I've noticed from working with students for 10 years now. I've noticed that many of my students, most of my students, Christian or non-Christian, kind of like Jesus. They think he's a great guy. They're attracted to the idea of sacrificial love. Who doesn't love that, right? The stories that we tell that are laced with that. They enjoy hearing about Jesus telling off the religious hypocrites. The stories that have him tenderly speaking to the dejected, to the sinners, to the prostitutes, to caring for poor people, restoring the sick. They love the idea that God would himself come to earth, that he would clothe himself in our flesh, that he would take on our sin and shame at the cross, that he would die there. And they love the general idea of growth and of virtue and of personal maturity. But for the most part, my students despise what Jesus has to say about their bodies and about their sexuality. Some of my students think it's ridiculous that they should only consider dating other Christians. They think it's narrow-minded to eliminate so many potential nice girls and guys from the very already small dating pool. 
Others think that Jesus has no right to restrict romance to heterosexuality or to confine sexual activity to the covenant of marriage. Here's what I found out about him. To them, Jesus is a friend when he goes to the, ta- when he goes to the temple and clears out the tax collectors. But to them, Jesus is an enemy when he comes to their bedroom and tries to clear that out as well. The privileges and boundaries of love are theirs to determine for themselves without any challenges of an archaic prophet. In the lives of my students, the Jesus that bears sin is easily loved. The Jesus that brings to light sin, well, he's a harder sell. And there really is a bottom line here. It's an easy answer for all of this. I could have saved us all 10 minutes. Here it is. No one, whether you're 2 or 10 or 25 or 55, no one likes being told that they're wrong, including the whole world (laughs) under the spell of Adam. And listen to me. If the church begins to take up that proclamation as she is called to do in verses 26 through 27, If we take up the proclamation of the one who is not only the sin bearer, but also the sin bringer, the proclamation that belongs to the church, not only of comfort, but also of challenge, then the world will do this. The world will grit its teeth. The world will raise its fist in hostility to defend its right, not only to self-presentation, but also to self-definition against those who would name its ugliness. And it is a fight that aims at making casualties of the people of God to silence you or to turn you. Happy Mother's Day. What can we say? How is the church then supposed to pass by the dragon faithfully without being devoured by the dragon? How is the church supposed to move through the world without being ruined and destroyed by it? Look at verse 26 with me. Jesus says this, but when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Now maybe you know this already. The word Helper there comes from a Greek word, parakletos. It's a word that's often translated in a lot of different ways. It can be translated advocate. It can be translated encourager. It can be translated friend. Here's what Jesus is saying. In our struggle to abide in Christ, in the church's struggle to live in this world without being ruined by it, without being devoured by it, here's here's God's strategy. He sends you a friend. And I ask you this morning, is there anything better in a struggle, in suffering and persecution, is there anything better than having a friend. Someone who is committed to you. Someone who is fighting with you. Someone who even now is fighting for you. Notice how this friend helps the church. In our struggle to believe in Jesus, the Spirit helps us. In our struggle to believe in Jesus, the Spirit helps us by proclaiming to us Jesus. 
In our struggle to believe in Jesus, here's, how the, here's the strategy of the Spirit in his friendship. He helps us by bearing witness to Jesus. As Luther once said, the poor Holy Spirit doesn't know any other subject. It's all he's got. He is a parrot, literally, that knows one name. It's Jesus. We struggle to remain committed to Jesus, and the Spirit, at the same time, is struggling with us in friendship by proclaiming a love from Jesus that is committed to us. It's hard to get lost these days because of all of our technology, but I've been really lost twice in my life. Once, when I was four or five, and I was at a production of Sesame Street on Ice with my dad in Nashville. As soon as the show was over, I ran out of this massive downtown auditorium, apart from my dad. Convinced that in my independence, I could find the exit myself, get there before he was there, and wait for them. And my goodness, how impressed he would be by me. Well, it didn't work out that way. In the course of the masses spilling out of the auditorium, I got confused There was no way to retrace my steps at this point because I was buried in a sea of thousands of people. And so I ran around frantically looking for my dad until I just got exhausted. I went outside the auditorium, and I sat down in a corner, and I just started weeping. And a tall man with a young family saw me, and he offered to help. And here's what he did very simply. He put me on his shoulders so that I could see over the crowd. And he stood there and didn't move. And we just waited there together. I was on his shoulders. We stood in the same place. And our strategy was to wait. Before long, as we waited, I could see my dad running around the corner. And the whole time, my dad had been searching the crowd for me. This stranger knew this. My dad would not leave the premises without me. He would come for me. And he knew that in the midst of that, he had one simple job, to put me in a position where I could see him running clearly towards me. That really is the role of the Holy Spirit. In friendship, the Spirit puts the church in a position where we can see Jesus. Where we can see the one whose love has bound him to run towards us, whose love has bound him to return for us at whatever the cost. You see, at the cross, Jesus suffered the silence of God and death. And here's why. So that you and I could gain the advocacy of God in life. How is it that the church is able to pass by the dragon faithfully without being devoured by it. Here's the whole of it. We just have to keep the conversation going. We proclaim the sin-bringing, sin-bearing love of Jesus in the world even as we hear the Spirit proclaiming that same love to us in his word. As the church, we've said this many times as a church, as the church, we hear Jesus As the church, we love Jesus. As the church, we proclaim Jesus. Like Luther said of the Spirit, we become those poor people who really don't know any other subject. We become those poor people, those parrots who have only one word, who know only one name. It is the name of the seed of the woman. 
It is the name who from Genesis 3 was called God's champion. It is the name of the one who will eventually emerge victorious on behalf of God, on behalf of God's people, and on behalf, finally, of God's world. This is the gospel according to John. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do thank you for this morning. We thank you for the privilege of worshiping you together as a family. And God, we do pray that you would give us the grace to make and keep our home in Jesus. To abide in him in the midst of a world that by his own self-testimony hates him. Oh Lord, would you keep us from falling away. Even more, we pray now as we do every week that you would come quickly and that you would break the spell of Adam's transgression so that your entire world may be renewed, your people vindicated, your son raised high. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.